Welcome to the Med Street Journal. Hello and welcome to another very special episode of the Med Street Journal podcast sponsored by Open Loop, trusted partner for telehealth companies across the U.S. looking to launch and scale the telehealth services. Check them out at openloophealth.com. Today I'm joined by another awesome guest, Mr. Adam Lorton. He is a healthcare data consultant. And Adam is an independent consultant who helps value-based care executives solve expensive data problems. He is the author of the Healthcare Data Hiring Handbook and is the host of the Analytical IQ Healthcare Podcast. So excited to hear what he's working on and the impact he's trying to create within the healthcare space. So that being said, Adam, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Rodney. Thanks for having me on. Great to be here. Yeah, no problem. Why don't we just start off, give people a brief background of who you are, how you got into the healthcare space and what you're working on now. Sure. Well, the to the question of how I got into healthcare, like I'm starting to gather this like a lot of us, but it was totally by accident. So it did it did kick off a really interesting journey though. I know a lot of people who have had kind of job change drama and it always seems to come back to the one common denominator. Well, in this country, not in every country. The one common denominator though, health insurance. So I was a data scientist and I was working at a software company. I was an operations manager for them. The company was based in Canada. They were a startup, money was tight. And because all of the Canadian employees, they got government health insurance, they didn't really feel like paying for my health insurance. And that was fine when I was in my 20s and I was totally invincible. But everything started to change when I got married and we started talking about having kids. Uh, so my wife and I, we both grew up in small towns. We had met in Chicago. We had awesome childhoods living in these small towns. And we knew we wanted to try to replicate that experience for our kids. So we decided we were going to leave Chicago and move to northern Michigan. And so we made a deal. We were going to move just as soon as one of us got a job that had health insurance. I didn't care what industry it was in. But as luck would have it, a friend of a friend passed along a job description and it looked like it was just absolutely made for me. Uh, they needed somebody who could interpret federal law and then turn that into data models. I was like, how many people could even do that? So this is back in the, back in like 2015 when the idea of pay for performance was a pretty new concept. So I dove into the literature, tried to figure out how these programs work. It so happens that I love games. My my dad actually still runs a, a board game store in Indiana, but I love games. And I loved like fantasy football. And so using data to try to win the game just always felt like a lot of fun to me. So I loved this challenge. So I started out, I was a pay for performance analyst, and then I became a hospital profitability analyst. Uh, now I call myself a healthcare data consultant, but really the past six years of my career, it's all been kind of iterations on that same theme, which is what game are we playing? And how can we use data to win the game? And yeah. I can hear the voices already saying, Adam, you can't call this a game. There are people's lives at stake. But there, there are people's lives at stake in a lot of different contexts. If your hospital goes out of business and has to sell to a competitor or has to close down, then there are a lot of lives in your community that, that are going to be affected too. So I think winning the game for an individual hospital is a good thing. Yeah, that's interesting. And a lot of not a lot of people like to tackle data and just looking at numbers and being able to analyze and interpret that data and paint a, a picture that can actually help a company reach its business results, you know? And when you mix that into healthcare, which is super regulated and very complex industry, like why healthcare? Like 
versus other industries. Like I said, I completely lucked into healthcare. That just happened to be who was hiring at the time. But once I got into it, I just found out, uh, I found out a lot of interesting things like there's this uh there's this kind of battle between the old guard and the new wave the old guard is like no 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 fee for service is the way to deliver healthcare if it costs us more to deliver then it should be, get reimbursed higher and then the new wave's like well what about value based care why should we pay more if that's not the care that the patient needed or why should we pay more if the patient should have had preventative care 10 years ago that would have prevented this from ever being needed nice awesome and so when you think of like data, when you think of healthcare, you talk to a lot of like people, whether they come from the healthcare side, the business side, technology side, but experts in this field usually deal with complex problems. And usually when they explain that complex problems, they do it in a way that's still complex. And so how do you navigate that? And how does that kind of influence your communication style um, when you're dealing with these people? Sure. I wish I had some something that a person could take home and say, you know, I'm going to start doing that other than to me, simplicity is a priority. And I don't know where I got that originally. Do you ever read Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink? Not a healthcare book in the slightest, a leadership book. And he talks about his experience in the Iraq war. But uh, simplicity was like a, a huge keyword for the Navy SEALs. Whenever they make a plan, the plan's got to be simpler. The plan's got to be simpler. And what I found is that the the clients who appreciate my work the most they appreciate it because i'm distilling these really complex concepts down to simple here's what we have to focus on or here are the three bullet points as opposed to the as opposed to here's a giant page with uh, 75 numbers on it so being able to like simplify something like that that's obviously a skill set that not a lot of people can do or even want to spend the time and energy but i feel like for someone whose mind works the way you do, especially having that operations background, that's like right up your wheelhouse because you're able to like find these problems, take all this data and information, find the problem and then deconstruct the process to finding that solution. And so I'm kind of curious on like a little bit deeper into how your mind works and how you kind of go through that process when you are working with these customers and how do you reverse engineer finding the solution to a problem? Sure. And I think the principle that it has to be simple kind of comes first for me. So, um, you know, if I see if I see a page with too many points on it or if I see a uh, page with too many numbers on it, um, my first my gut reaction is it's got to be simpler. Um, and I, I think that comes partially from experience, from working with uh, people in the field, people on the front lines of healthcare who are saying, sure, you know, thanks for sharing this profitability report or this pay for performance report with me. But Adam, you got to understand, I got a thousand other concerns. I've got to manage my staffing spend. I, I've got personnel issues. I've got got a thousand things to worry about that aren't our patient experience scores. And especially clean and quiet at night. Who's got time to worry about whether it's clean and quiet at night? I got to make sure that there's somebody who's going to cover this next shift. Um, so prioritizing simplicity, um, it comes naturally and also it comes from experience. Interesting. So we're talking about like the importance of data for like this. And when it comes to data in general, not even just healthcare, there's so many different like points of data and information that you have to track, measure, analyze. So how do you go about determining which data to prioritize first and what is important? <laughs> this is where you benefit a lot from working with an organization that has already decided what is our true north 
uh, are we here to make the most money? Are we here to improve patients' lives? And if they can use that true north to inform their decision making, well, that helps a lot. Okay, so if we are if we're looking for the solution that is a harmony between quality and cost, okay, we can measure quality, we can measure cost to an extent. Oh, we can measure cost really well. We can measure quality to an extent. And so we can start to strip away, okay, what are the things that don't matter and what's going to actually move the needle? I do think when you find a lot, or I think a lot of the healthcare people I've interacted with who started on the clinical side don't really enjoy the financial side. And so I think that's one place where I've been fortunate that I don't mind the financial side. And actually, I'm always intensely curious about, especially a business as complicated as this, like, how do these people actually make money? That's always a, the first question that I want to answer. So <laughs> I don't know if that's fully answered your question, but that's uh, that's sort of the, the beginning of the approach anyway. You mentioned like, when it comes to data, it's a lot of analytical using your logical brain. But obviously, a lot of the people that you're working with, they make decisions based off emotions. So how do you kind of navigate that spectrum to be able to share the value of what you're doing without kind of going too far into the emotional spectrum? One of the things I like to read, cause I'm a weirdo, I like to read psychology books in my free time. And so I love uh, like the book, Thinking Fast and Slow. It's all about cognitive bias and influence the psychology of persuasion. And this is all about ways that we're influenced to make emotional decisions without necessarily recognizing it. So one thing I've tried to do for myself is get really, get a lot more in touch with why am I making this decision and being okay with, hey, look, I'm probably making this decision emotionally because most people make most of their decisions emotionally. So, but where is that emotion coming from? And if it's because of a bias like confirmation bias, so confirmation bias is where when you see something that agrees with your worldview already, you're more likely to think that it's true. And if you see something that doesn't agree with your worldview, you're like, no, that's obviously BS. If you can recognize confirmation bias in yourself, or if you can recognize recency bias, like, oh, I'm being influenced by the most recent thing I read or the most recent thing I heard. If you can recognize you're being influenced by bias, one way I try to do it is lead by example. And so when I'm trying to make a point in a meeting, I'll say, hey, I know I'm being influenced by recency bias because I just read a thing on this, but this thing totally feels like it applies here. What do you guys think? So leading by example, but then also I'm actually right now trying to develop a curriculum to teach healthcare leaders about cognitive bias. What are some of the ones that they are susceptible to? What are the ones that they engage in without even noticing it? And then how can they make their decisions more in the interest of their organization and less in the interest of their ego? Let's dive into that. That's something you already started building out? Well, yeah. So, right. I mean, right now I'm in the early stages just conducting interviews with people to see, you know, I know what I've experienced. I know what my clients have experienced, but I don't know if those are problems are personal or if they're universal. Right now I'm still collecting information and figuring out what are those problems that everybody is having so that I can design a curriculum that would help them. Because you don't want just-in-case information. You don't need to learn every type of cognitive bias that's available to you. You need to learn some information that will actually help you make a better decision tomorrow at that board meeting or next week at that senior leadership meeting. So that's what I'm trying to collect right now, or what are the real problems? It's not like healthcare executives are like, you know what, I think we have a real problem with cognitive bias in our organization. So I also need to figure out what are the symptoms that a healthcare leader would experience that would actually indicate that there's a problem with cognitive bias, ego-based decision-making. So that's the stage I'm in now. And actually, while we're on the subject, I wanted to say, um, 
if there's anybody who would like to talk about this, if there's someone listening to this podcast, and if you've taken the time to listen to this, I really appreciate it. And if you think you, if you have something to share, if you want to share your experience, or you just want to talk about anything at all, but especially if you want to talk about cognitive bias and decision-making in your healthcare organization, I would really love to help with that. And you can book a free 25-minute call with me at analyticaliq.com slash medstreet. Awesome. I'll be sure to include that link in the resources. So anybody that does want to get in contact with you, they have that um, freedom to do so. But you mentioned like a good point, like the process that you're going through in order to identify a problem rather than doing this thing like if you build it then they'll come you're actually going out and trying to extract what are the people's problems and pain points and then from there you can go out and that kind of influences the content that you go ahead and build out and i feel like that's a more it's a smarter approach to what you're trying to do especially for the problems that you're trying to solve what does Peter Drucker say? I love the quote so much that I have to go ahead and repeat it on the show here. He says, there's nothing more tragic than doing something really efficiently that never should have been done at all. That's how I feel, I feel about creating a product. It would be nice for my ego to create a product that I think is the perfect thing, but that would only be useful to others if it actually addresses the problems that they have. Dang, I like that. I like that. And you mentioned like a lot of stuff around bias. And as you were mentioned, I was like, dude, I do a lot of that same stuff. So, it's like, <laughs> so once you can get into the mind of people and just understand how they think, I feel like it's easier to extract certain bits of pieces of information that you can then leverage later on to benefit them or you. That's why I love podcasts. One of my favorite media, because you get a chance to be a fly on the wall when two smart people are talking. And that to me has just been so valuable for my learning experience. Cause you don't just get to hear their ideas. You get to hear like, how they position their ideas, how they talk about their ideas when they're talking with somebody else who's smart. So yeah, I think podcasts are an amazing medium to to pick up stuff like that. Yeah, and I've seen your content on YouTube, on your podcast, and like you create your own content, like you're tapped into the pulse of the industry. You're also collaborating with other like-minded individuals as well. So I feel like you have a good idea on high level 30 foot, what's going on in the industry. So. I'm curious, like your perspective, what sort of trends are you seeing that kind of stick out to you? Definitely not the only one following this, but I've been very interested in what they're calling the Medicare Advantage money machine. We had heard that report about the uh, Office of the Inspector General who's auditing Medicare Advantage plans for overcoding. And then quickly after that was that Health Affairs article by Don Berwick and Rick Gilfillan. So I think probably most people who are listening to this already know the story, so I'll make it real quick. So in Medicare Advantage, the insurance plan gets more money per patient if the patient is sicker, which is a good thing in general. You, you would like your government to pay more to insure sicker patients and less to insure healthier patients. And Medicare Advantage plans have known about this for a long time. Like anyone playing a game for a long time, they've gotten very sophisticated at making sure all their doctors are evaluating each patient and applying the diagnosis codes that are going to get them paid the most. And of course, this is not illegal. This is quite legal. I actually heard Don Berwick say in a Q&A, he thinks the number one use of AI and machine learning in healthcare is risk score gaming. Not ideal. You would probably like AI and machine learning to be detecting cancer or something like that. And so the, none of this is a problem, except the rules were not written to account for this like illness inflation that's going on in Medicare Advantage. And so what ends up happening is that the Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries actually pay for the part of the premiums of the Medicare Advantage beneficiaries, 
And then those extra dollars are generally not going to patient care. They're going to doctors and insurance companies for extra profits. So as an American taxpayer, I absolutely hate this. Also, as a management consultant, it's my job to help my clients figure out how to milk the money machine. So you think about a health system, you have two options. You can opt out of the money machine. So you say, all right, we're going to make less money. We're going to be at risk of closing our facilities and laying off our staff. We're going to save each American taxpayer a few dollars in exchange for what? Lower employment in our community, fewer healthcare facilities. So whether you think the money machine needs to be reformed, which I do, there's only one really good choice for your community, your employer, that's you play the game the best way you can. You invest as much of the proceeds as you can into programs that you think are going to lead to long-term health for the community. That's interesting. And just like, honestly, just hearing you explain that, I can see like the value of your role in the market as a consultant, because like really you're just getting paid for how you think you're like intellectual value. And because you're able to follow these trends, being able to see the gaps in the whole process and like working on solutions to bridge those gaps, I think that's where you can share your value to the market. You're not wrong, Rodney. I can't make the extra money for the health system. If I could make you an extra five or $10 million, then I could probably charge 40% of five or $10 million, which would be amazing. But I can give you the information to tell you what to focus on that will help you earn an extra five or $10 million in a year. And so maybe I can charge a small percentage of that. Yeah, that's interesting. And so like for you, like you trying to solve these complex problems, deal with high value organizations that usually they already have certain processes, infrastructures in place. So how do you go about educating them on what you see, where they're at, and where they can be in bridging that gap. For me, the process is no surprise to you, Rodney. It's a lot about simplicity. We figure out where's the opportunity, and then how could we create a simple system for reliably getting a little bit closer every day to the goal that we want to hit. And then something that's really important to me is that whatever system you put in place, it can't add manual labor to a person because if it adds manual labor, first of all, that person is not going to enjoy that part of their job. And second of all, um, things that involve a lot of manual labor also involve a lot of opportunity for error. So how do we create a simple system? And then how do we make sure that that system is as automated as possible so that when a human has to be involved, they're adding value to the process and not just nudging the process along, just telling the computer, yes, you may go to the next step now, Mr. Computer. Nice. So when you're like creating systems, like obviously you have a mix of technology, automation, then you have the people yeah. to be able to delegate the responsibilities of that system. But how do you go about monitoring and like collecting feedback to make sure like what you're actually building out is actually working and of value? And if it's not, how do you go about improving based on the feedback that you collect? Absolutely. There is no system that I would propose. And normally I'm not proposing the system as like a maverick. I'm, you know, working, <laughs> I'm interviewing people, working alongside them, asking, what do you have now? How do you like what's working? What would you change if you could? And then making, you know, a recommendation that everybody's already on board with for, hey, why don't we update the system? Why don't we simplify this? Why don't we automate this part? Along with designing such a system would be 
How would we know if the system is working? What would be the leading indicators? What are the things we should be doing every day that we think will get us closer to the goal? How would we know if they are getting us closer to the goal? And so then with that, we can use our make, make ourselves a feedback loop. Faster feedback loops are generally better and uh, adjust as, as necessary. Awesome. You mentioned a couple of different projects that you are working on or like have your eye on, but sure. I want to give you an opportunity to talk about how you're helping bring healthcare administration to the 21st century. Sure. So along with my research into cognitive bias and decision-making, I'm seeing that it converges with a couple of other trends. And the first would be the trend of moving work virtually. For the longest time, of course, healthcare has to be delivered in person. But as healthcare administrations have gotten bigger, there are more and more roles that not only are not patient-facing, they're 0% of the time do they need to be on-site, especially when we have these amazing online collaboration tools. And what I've seen is that a lot of organizations, because of the historical nature of healthcare, have been slow to adopt these decentralized models. And then along with that, there are these amazing online-only companies that are springing up that are virtual first or they're distributed first. And so because of that, they have all these amazing systems and processes around how do we make smart decisions if we're never in the same conference room together at the same time? How do we make smart decisions if we live in different time zones and it's really hard for us to meet on Zoom? In my opinion, the better that the healthcare industry can adopt these sorts of systems and processes, the better that they're going to be able to compete because you had better believe that the companies that are trying to disrupt healthcare with AI and machine learning and virtual first, virtual front doors for patients, uh, you better believe that they're adopting these best practices. And so this converges with the work that I've been doing on decision-making in healthcare is uh, how do we act more like those virtual first companies? And so I'll just repeat uh, what I mentioned before is if any of this is resonating with you and you would like to talk to me about it, you can go to analyticaliq.com slash medstreet. And I would love to hear your perspective if you're listening to this. Yeah, that's a good point because especially healthcare industry, slow to adopt new technology, a bunch of regulations. And yeah. it's an industry that's like, once their balls moving in one direction, it's hard to change direction. And so, but we look at like the past year or two with the whole COVID pandemic and whatnot, and the whole impact that's had on the industry. And you start to see people adopting telehealth services or just like jumping on Zoom for virtual communicating. I feel like that's the surface level. And there's a lot more ways that people can improve productivity and make processes a little more streamlined and efficient. So like, I feel like that's another valuable problem that you're tackling. Well, you know, we've been talking pretty high level here, but let's take this one level closer to the surface. One of the things that organizations have historically rewarded people for is being really talkative in meetings. Uh, if you're not really talkative in meetings, you're not going to get invited to as many meetings and your voice isn't going to be heard as well. But in a lot of online first distributed companies, it doesn't matter how many meetings you attend, it matters how well you write online. And so there are people who are introverts or who are shy, who have really valuable input for your organization, who right now, you're not getting the benefit of their brain because they don't wanna speak up in meetings. But if you gave them 36 hours to think about a topic and then write something thoughtful, they would be happy to share that way. That's something where organizations right now, they're leaving behind part of their workforce, the part of their workforce that doesn't enjoy talking in meetings. And I think actually not a lot of people are aware of that. That's a good point. Cause I, that makes a hundred percent sense. Cause it's like not everyone 
when they're in a meeting has that like confidence or whatever to just say what they want in front of everybody and stuff, especially if there's other people who are just like more aggressive or just more like dominant in their conversation and communicating. But like you said, just allowing someone to go back and go through their own process of being able to express value. I feel like the whole virtual model really amplifies that opportunity for people. I would agree. I think back to when I worked at a health system, I was on the data science team and I was the one who got picked to go to all the, go to all the meetings because I enjoyed talking in meetings, even though I think if you ranked us in terms of intelligence or in terms of data science skill, I would have been right in the middle. But because I wasn't afraid to talk to managers or executives, they said, no, 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 Adam, you go, you go handle that one. We'll just, uh, we'll stay back here and write some code. I feel like it also, it all ties together too. Cause you, like you understand high level, but you also understand how to turn those complex concepts, simplify it. We go back to simplicity, simplify it to make that sort of information easier to digest. And now it's easier to get people to buy into whatever it is that you're sharing. And so we're coming up towards the end, but I have one more question. And it's like, yeah. what sort of advice would you have for these healthcare companies that they understand the importance of data and being able to track it, but don't know what to do, don't know how to get started, don't know what the next step is. How would you go about helping them? I'll be honest, I think more often than not, the problem is less likely to be that they haven't gotten started, is that they are overwhelmed. Most people I talk to, they say, we're getting so much information, we have no idea what to focus on. And this comes back to that theme of simplicity again. I think most healthcare leaders would be well served to delete three quarters of their reports and simplify the message that they're sending to the front lines, which is this year, this quarter, what we care about is we care about appropriate care for our diagnosis or for our diabetes patients or this year this quarter what we care about is making sure that our we're getting transitions of care follow up calls within 24 hours if we could make it one or two priorities as opposed to 27 or 28 priorities i think our organizations would see a lot more success hmm yeah i like that interesting information overload well and especially most executives they don't work with the ehr at all i think even though they feel like they're getting information overload they're they're like oh i'm shielding my people from all of this but what they're not getting are all those ehr alerts and all those payroll system alerts and all the day-to-day -day headaches that come with being near the front lines yeah interesting so it's like with that overwhelm that confusion with the data and everything like that that people in the market are experiencing now, then you have someone like you who kind of just understands what to look out for, why people are making certain decisions, whether it's not thinking logically and more emotionally, but then having you just come in, apply your expertise and really bring clarity to what people are focusing on. I think that's like real value of someone in your role and your position. So that's awesome. Oh, shucks, Rodney. <laughs> <laughs> We're coming up towards the end of the interview been talking about a lot of high level stuff, but I like to end each episode on a little lighter exercise with something I call the rapid fire round. I'm just going to ask you a list of questions and you give me whatever answers you come up with. Go for it. All right. Question number one, what is your favorite book of all time? My favorite book of all time is called How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big. This is by Scott Adams. He created the Dilbert comic. And this is actually the perfect gift, I think, for a college graduate. And the book all centers around this one crazy idea. You also find this idea in Atomic Habits by James Clear, but he uses provocative language. The idea is called 
goals are for losers and systems are for winners. The classic example of this, like a goal would be like, I want to lose 10 pounds or I want to add 40 pounds to my bench press. So every day that you don't, every day that you haven't reached your goal yet, you feel like you've failed. Whereas a system is something you do every day that gets you better odds for success. A system would be like, I'm gonna learn how to eat right, and I'm gonna learn what healthy foods I love to eat so that eating healthy is easy for me every day. Or a system would be like, how do I reward myself for going to the gym so that I love going to the gym every time? Business systems can be built in the same way. What's a simple business system that has a reward feedback loop built in so that people are more likely to execute on the system? And what, how do we make the feedback loop fast so that they know they're doing a great job and they know it not a month later, but they know it that same day? That's my favorite book of all time. Yeah, nice. That was a, also a good answer right there. And it got me thinking, like, you want to focus not on the destination, but the journey. Awesome. Uh, number two. Who is the most influential person in your life or career? This would be a co-award, my mom and dad. My parents were entrepreneurs. They own, owned a chain of retail board game stores in Indiana. And they kept telling me my entire life, you don't, you don't want the entrepreneur lifestyle. You just go work for a big, safe company because they're going to take care of you. And you don't want the headaches of owning a small business. But I watched them lead by example. And after chafing under every boss I ever had for 10 years, I had to open my own shop so I could chafe under my own leadership for a change. So you can see, uh, you can see my parents' fingerprints all over my life, despite what they told me when I was growing up. Awesome. Shout out to the parentals. That's good to see. Number three, what is one goal you want to accomplish within the next year? I would love input from the audience on this one as well, if you have input. So I have a business bank account that's called Profit. And at the end of every year, that money goes to my family. But this year, I just actually just got done reading this book called Doing Good Better by Will McCaskill. And one of the first things you read in the book is that if you make more than $52,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of earners globally. And it's easy to forget you're in the top 1% when you look at Instagram and you see people who are in the top like 0.1%. They're flexing on Instagram. But the book makes the case that you can buy yourself a beer for $5 or you can buy someone in the developing world a beer, a hypothetical beer for five cents. And so if you knew you could buy someone a beer for five cents, you'd be real generous, wouldn't you? And they say, well, look, that opportunity is open to you every single day, but a lot of people just don't take it. So $100 or $1,000 can make a huge difference in other people's lives because global poverty is just that extreme. So I've committed privately to my family, and this is me committing publicly, I'm going to give away 10% of the money in that bank account at the end of the year. And I'm going to give it away no matter what, but I haven't decided what organization to give it to. And so my goal is to find a cause that I feel great about supporting. So if you're listening to this and you have a cause that you think is really high ROI way to donate, I'd love to hear about it. That's awesome. Last but not least, what is one piece of advice you would give to your 20 year old self? Sure. Uh, so I'll take you back when I was 20. I was a junior at Grinnell College. I was working my way toward a degree, like a pretty fancy, pretty expensive college. And so I was there was a delusion that I was under. I thought that employers were going to be interested in me. They were going to be impressed by me because of the credential I was earning, you know, my bachelor's degree from this fancy, expensive school. And what I came to learn much later, much later than I should have, is that 
the more interesting and the more high performing a company or an organization is, the less they care about your credentials, the more they care about what you actually do or what you've actually done. What I've seen in my life is that the places that actually that care about your credentials are the places where not a lot is going on. Uh, so if I could go back and, and reorient my 20 year old self, it would be to orient around what you can achieve instead of what kind of like credential you can earn, what you can put on the resume. Mm, I like that. That's a good piece of advice. Cause honestly, like, especially for a lot of younger people in their early twenties or coming out of high school or college or whatever, I definitely see what you're talking about. Cause I was one of those people as well. So, <laughs> but I also understand what you're saying. I was like, focus on the value. Cause at the end of the day, your results are your certifications. And that's what people really care about. Yep. And by the way, that's not a recommendation to not get a college degree. College degrees <laughs> are, ex are extremely valuable unless you're going to Harvard paying $60,000 versus paying $14,000 for your college degree. A lot of times doesn't make a, any difference in your life, especially when you're 10 years out. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a perfect piece of advice. Excellent way to end today's episode. Adam, just want to thank you again for jumping on and sharing the impact that you're trying to make within the healthcare space, focusing on data analytics and all the different projects that you're focusing on. But before you go, uh, any last words, where can people connect with you if they're interested? In oh, sure. Yeah. So like I said, if, if anybody is listening to this and feels like they would, they really have something they want to talk about, especially if it's around cognitive bias and decision-making or making healthcare more virtual first in our workplace, I'd love to talk to you for 25 minutes. You can get that link at analyticaliq.com slash med street and then if you just want to see what i'm up to you can find me on linkedin adam lurton on twitter at uh, lurton ed l-o-r-t-o-n-a-d awesome and i'll be sure to include all those links in the resources section but with that being said that ends today's episode hope you guys got some value from this catch you on the next one